So, Mark. Yes? We love love. We love love. It's the titular role. It is. It is the titular (laughs) role in this podcast. So, this, as always, is our time to talk about all of the love in movies in 2021. A year where I did much better at watching movies than 2020. Or 2019, even. Or 2019. Yeah, that was a bad year. 2018 was my last good year, where I saw all of them except for one that I really actively chose not to see. Yeah, that was the Bohemian Rhapsody year. Yeah. Fun fact, I did have a tab open that just said 2021 and Googled because I forgot to add the word movies when I was <laughs> trying to think, remember what movies came out this year. Not helpful. Mark, you need to keep an Excel spreadsheet of every movie you watch in a given year like I do. I should. I really should. Maybe I'll start that this year. Oh, it's hello. handy. Shyla has made an appearance. <laughs> oh boy. What is the best movie Shyla watched this year? Um, so Shyla's favorite piece of media this year was Euphoria. There to was... be clear, this is your dog. Yes, this is my dog. Nick was watching Euphoria and sent me a video of her very intently staring at the screen. Well, which she, she had she to never see that does. play. Yeah. It was very odd. Usually the only thing that she reacts to is like other dogs and small animals. So I have not watched Euphoria. Me neither. Well, I've seen like four episodes now. Okay, what I was going to ask is whether we need to watch the episode where they put on a play about themselves as preparation for our upcoming High School Musical 3 episode where they also put on a play about themselves. I don't think it's a terrible idea, but also there is the Summer Heights High episode where Mr. G puts on a musical about a student that dies that includes a song about how she's a slut. I don't know if you've ever watched Summer Heights High. I have not, but I'll watch that episode. I think we need to put together a whole collection of media for that one. I agree. I think that episode might end up being our longest yet if we accomplish all of the goals we set for it. That's okay. I just, I think this is a good idea. I agree. Okay. (laughs) All right. This is always a big episode. I feel like we're getting a lot done already. Yes. I'm very happy with where we're at. I agree. But I do think it is time to appreciate the movies that came out in 2021, which does not include High School Musical 3. Criminally. Criminally. They should be re-releasing it every year. (laughs) It should be eligible every year as a contender for our awards. It should just be, I want it to have, like, a marketing campaign like The Masters, where every year, like, some serious old man is doing voiceover, like, the tradition continues. High School Musical 3 in theaters. (laughs) I would volunteer my services for that role if I had a remotely deep voice. Look, AMC is really committing to those $5 fan faves and, like, bringing back older stuff, which is cool and a good way to get people to movies if they would advertise it. Yeah, they could do some more work on that. Yeah, I found out that they're going to be doing a whole Focus 20th anniversary thing in April because I am on the Focus Features email list. I mean, if they really listened to the fans, they wouldn't keep showing the short version of Nicole Kidman walking in a silver suit. I've seen the long one several times now in a row. I mean, I gotta say, if there was a movie where I didn't mind the short version, it was The Godfather. Okay, but they showed me the long one at the Batman. Yeah, that, I want to see it, but every time I go and look at times, I'm like, well, I don't really want to get home at midnight. It's the thing of, like, where do I want to be three and a half hours after this start time? And the answer is usually in bed for two and a half hours. I'll tell you, though, it's good. Yes, I will try and make it. 
or watch it at home. I saw it on a day where I did not teach last period, so I left school early to get into a showtime of the Batman that got me out at 6 o'clock. I mean, that's the move. Yeah. Made it home in time for Survivor. Every picture I see from that movie of Zoe Kravitz in different outfits makes me want to watch it more, I gotta say. She's good in it. Everyone's good in it. She's almost always good. Kimmy herself. Except not. (laughs) No, she is not. Indeed not Kimmy. We've now committed pretty deep to 2022 movies, and I think we should circle back. Yeah, let's circle back. I think it's time. I think it is the moment everyone has been waiting all year for. The only award that we have given out since the beginning. Since, like, like our 12th episode of this podcast was an Oscars episode. Wow. I gotta say, the, like, first 12 episodes feel like they took so much longer than the last 12. Like oh, yeah. every, epi- it, every episode gets increasingly longer, and yet the time between episodes feels increasingly short. Yeah, they just they just go. But that's also, I guess, we recorded for like two months before we put out an episode. Uh, also true. But this year, we will be awarding the award for Best Romance That Wasn't Nominated. Will, may I have your winner, please? Okay, I have an honorable mention for this as well, and for a couple of these. My honorable mention is I'm Your Man which I'm guessing slipped your radar. Yes. This movie is part of a proud tradition of me tricking my sister Mora into going to movies without telling her they are not in English. Does she get mad every time? Like, how does she How does she still fall for it? I mean, here's the thing. You and I agree. I don't understand how this is still happening. It started, I like infamously in my family, texted everyone after I saw Parasite, like opening weekend in the U.S., And said, everyone needs to go see Parasite. It's the funniest movie I've seen in theaters all year. And like a week later, my family was eating brunch. And Rob's like, so who followed Will's text? And (laughs) all of them had. And Rob's like, so no one said it was in Korean. And no one said it was not a comedy. And there's me like, it's funny. It was funny. It's objectively funny. So I'm Your Man was Germany's submission for this year's Academy Awards. Because each country gets to pick a movie to submit for Best International Feature. And this one is about a woman who is like a tester. She's a skeptic, which is why she gets hired as a tester for this new company that will design your perfect android romantic partner, played by Dan Stevens. Wow. The movie is real charming. And I go out of the movie and I say, Dan Stevens, parentheses Downton Abbey, is in one of the best rom-coms I've seen in years. It's called I'm Your Man. And my sister went to see it. And she found out it was in German when the subtitles started. I assume that she realized the extraordinary adventures of Mr. West in the land of the Bolsheviks was not in English, but it also wasn't in any language. Did we tell her it was silent film? The intertitles were in English. Yes. And then actually, like two months after the I'm Your Man thing, I invited her to see Parallel Mothers with me. And so... That time I told her nothing about it. I said, I'm going to see Parallel Mothers. Do you want to come along? And she said, okay. We're walking into the theater. And I say, by the way, you know this is in Spanish, right? And she says, no, I did not. I'm like, at this point, you should be Googling this. This should be turning up. Yeah, this is on her more than you, I would say. So anyway, I'm Your Man with Hot Nice Robot Dan Stevens is my number two for best romance that wasn't nominated because it did not get into international feature. My number one, incredibly not nominated in a single category. The Matrix Resurrections. I am surprised it didn't get any of the, like, visual effects. I didn't watch it, but it kind of felt like one of those things where it just would. Mark, they had to leave room for Free Guy. 
I have so little desire to watch that movie. I'll tell you, it's better than I expected it to be. That's what it's you like, said, but fairly fun. I still, I still no interest. Uh, but I, here's the thing: every frame of Matrix Resurrections looks better than anything in Free Guy. It looks better than anything in Shang Chi. Probably looks better than anything in Spider Man. Dune is nominated for those, right? Dune is nominated and should run away with it. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen most of those, but I still think Dune should win just for being Dune. But yeah, I mean, Matrix Resurrection is just a whole movie about being really in love and getting to be able to kiss each other, and it's great. Mark, you have to watch it. It's so good. I will. I just, I didn't get to the third Matrix yet. Oh, okay. So I needed to finish that, and then I also, we hit the point where... I was watching movies for the podcast, trying to get to theaters, and then I was like, oh shit, the Oscars episode is in a week, and I have only been <laughs> watching Oscars movies since then. <laughs> well, I picked up the the Steely last week, so I can also hook you up with Resurrections. It's still on HBO Max, though, isn't it? Maybe not. I don't know if it's come back yet. At some point, it will. Anyway, so yeah, so my pick, best romance that wasn't nominated, Matrix Resurrections. What about you? My pick, you might be shocked to learn is a movie that was not nominated for any Oscars. It is the relationship between Star and Edgar from Barbara Star go to Vista Del Mar. <laughs> I had a feeling. <laughs> I was torn because there's also Barb and Tommy Bahama, another that excellent is romance. The reveal of Andy Garcia as Tommy Bahama is, like, the thing is, it's like, the 30th funniest joke in that movie is what's incredible about that. I just, the joke where Barb goes on a date with Edgar, Star goes on the exact same date with Edgar. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> it's so good. And their romance is actually pretty sweet. And Star overcoming her negative self-talk that resulted from her divorce is very fun to watch. Everyone, you might be surprised to learn, I am a fan of Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. I just like that Jamie Dornan came off Wild Mountain Time, which, say what you will about it, is a Wild Mountain Time, and then had, like, the greatest 2021, where, like, he has Barb and Star, and say what you will about Belfast, and I certainly will, he is very <laughs> good in it. He is a very good actor, and one of the biggest crimes is that Dairy Girls is ending before he could be on an episode of Dairy Girls. <laughs> it's just upsetting. Um, okay, so yeah, I mean, that's the thing. There's there's a lot of good good romances, a lot of good movies last year. I had a lot of fun getting back to the movies last year. We need it, all of us, the indescribable feeling we get when the lights begin to dim. Like, the movies are good. And the movies are good so far this year. I don't know if you've heard, Will, but heartbreak feels good in a place like this. In a place like this, it feels good. And there's no two ways about it. Ugh. So, I mean, we recently did our 2021 wrap-up. I guess recently isn't three months ago, but what is time? But did you have any new favorites that came out in that brief window that you wanted to... Well, when did we record that episode? I think we did it We recorded that on December 30th. Okay. So, there was not a lot of time for any movies to come out after you made your 2021 top 10 list. Yeah, I mean, there are some that, like, hadn't quite made their way around. Like, I had not yet seen The Worst Person in the World at that point, which I have since seen twice, and I think that's an incredible movie. That, like, I saw it at Sundance, and then I saw it again when it opened in theaters. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of good throughout. Anders Danielson Lee 
who is a working doctor who is also the hot star of that and Bergman Island, gives this monologue towards the end of the movie that is all about the emptiness of searching for meaning by surrounding yourself with things. And, and that one hits me pretty hard as I bike up to Best Buy for another steelbook. As you're surrounded by your toys. Exactly, yeah. But, like, that's a really cool movie. I think you would love Flea. I've really been meaning to get to that. I had not yet seen Drive My Car at the point you recorded that episode. Oh, I'm very excited to talk about that one. That's a movie we're going to talk about a lot. Well, you say that, but if we really just stick to the romance, (laughs) I gotta say, could be very short. That is true. And then one that I was disappointed but not surprised to see get zero nominations was Red Rocket, the new Sean Baker movie, which I just think is an incredible piece of filmmaking. Simon Rex is great in it. It's the the same donut shop from Tangerine, isn't it? Wow. She's booking. Yeah. It's it's a really cool movie that very few people saw, and I get why. Uh, Well, I believe we have many films to cover today. Ten. A guaranteed ten now. A guaranteed ten. So I think it is time to dive in and say welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Do the romances of 2021's Best Picture nominees actually make any sense? And did 2021 include movies about likable people? Or, I guess, first dateable and then likable people? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, like like a licorice pizza, or if it's just in a prologue, like in Drive My Car. Granted, that prologue is longer, or, you know. That prologue would not qualify for a short at the Oscars. Yes. But anyway, we will dig in and see what's there. And so, um, as always, there will be spoilers for every Best Picture nominee, because what we're going to do is rate the believability of all ten romances. We're going to do it lightning round. But like, if, but it, like if lightning was really slow. <laughs> yeah, if lightning, if lightning McQueen lost the race. That is the pace we will move. Lightning McQueen, when he has that big, like, repaver machine hooked up to the back of him, and he's, like, repaving the road because Doc Hudson wouldn't let him out of town unless he did that. Right. And he has to learn that the people in Radiator Springs are kind of good, and also that, like, having a good road is nice. And taking the slow route sometimes pays off. Kerchow. Well, that's the thing. The interstate is the enemy. Yes. All right. So, (laughs) should we do this? Okay, uh, before we get into Best Picture nominees, Mark, I got one more uh, bonus award for you. What is the best animal in a 2021 movie? I believe we inaugurated this award as the best cat in the year that cats came out. (laughs) Probably. But what about the rabbits in the year of the rabbit? As we know, 2021 was a huge year for rabbits. But it was the second big year for rabbits in a while. Or in, like, not that long. Yeah, look, this is the age of the rabbit. We are in the age of the rabbit, and it is not just rabbits that are running away. No, and to be clear, I would say the runaway is not even the best rabbit in Peter Rabbit 2, the runaway. Wow. A bold claim. James Corden is not the best character in a movie he is in. (laughs) Mark, you did not watch Girl Boss Cinderella, which may be featured at this year's Academy Awards. I have so little desire to see that, but also, one time I might get incredibly drunk and watch it. I, I kind of recommend it. It's the weird thing. I was, like, openly excited for it because it was the new movie from Kay Cannon who directed Blockers, which you and I very much liked. And 
I think it's pretty well directed. Like, the musical numbers are staged in pretty fun ways. I will grant it that. However, <laughs> I was interested until I read Girl Bossification of Cinderella, and then I said, it really I am is. out. It is about Cinderella's aspirations to run a small business in a magic kingdom where women are not allowed to run businesses. Oof. That's just... It's a very strange movie. But anyway, yes, it may be featured at this year's Oscars because in what is almost certainly a desperate attempt to be able to feature Spider-Man No Way Home, the Academy announced that they would be awarding an Oscars fan favorite thing. They've made it very clear it will not be an Oscar, but an Oscars fan favorite thing will be featured as voted on by Twitter. Oh, right. And Cinderella was doing well. Right, so the leaders were Spider-Man, so they were getting what they wanted. Girl Boss Cinderella being pushed by Camilla Cabello stands. A Johnny Depp movie that I have never heard of being pushed by Johnny Depp stands. And then just like clearly Netflix astroturfing because it was like Tick, Tick, Boom, fine. The teens are into Tick, Tick, Boom. But then also Power of the Dog. And I refuse to believe the teens are into Power of the Dog. People on Twitter aren't voting for Power of the Dog. Right, that's the thing. Like I totally buy the Johnny Depp stuff even though it's like I don't even believe most people voting for that have seen it. I just think they're weird Johnny Depp stands. Like, I believe the Cinderella thing because pop star stands are a thing. So whatever happens, it was obviously dumb to let Twitter decide something. And it will be dumb in the ceremony. And frankly, they will be lucky if it turns out to be Spider-Man. I can't wait for the year that a K-pop star is in a movie. Oh, you know what? Um, Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead was also in the running because originally the Snyder stands were going for the Snyder cut, and then they were told that it did not qualify because it was not a new movie. Ugh. All right. Well, my favorite animal in a 2021 movie, I believe it's the hero, the true hero of the film, the Mitchells versus the Machines, Monchi, their little pug that could also be a loaf of bread or a potato. A great answer. The star of the internet... A very cute dog and voiced by a famous pug named Doug. So in the spirit of the year of rabbits, I thought about doing the rabbit from Nightmare Alley, which I do think is the best of this year's rabbits. Good rabbit. But ultimately, like, it's an obvious answer. I had to go with it. The pig from pig. The pig from pig is the best animal in a 2021 movie. Yeah, I, I buy that. It's just a very good pig. And I think it should be recognized for its goodness. Like when people say, oh my goodness, they're talking about the pig. The pig is our goodness. Well, Will, it is time. Will you take us to the first Oscar nominee for Best Picture, Belfast? These boys are suffering. I don't think we've got till Easter. I don't think you and me have got till Easter either. Liam, come home. We'll fight this together. All right, yeah, we're going through these alphabetically, so we're kicking things off with Belfast, which actually, as I'm looking at it, is also the first one of these that I saw. I saw, Mark, You said how many of these have you seen in total? I've seen eight. Well, okay. technically seven and a half. One I turned off because I hated it, but I'm still counting sure. it. So you didn't see Belfast and King Richard? Correct. Okay. I saw all of these. I saw all of them except for Coda in theaters, because Coda like barely got a theatrical release. And I think Belfast was the first one I saw. Mark, I need I need you to know that I was in the tank for Belfast. I know. I remember. You were excited. You were, like, ready for it to be good. 
I was like, Branagh, picture, director, screenplay. And you were ready. It just felt right. And then it won Toronto. And I was like, boom, here we go. I think that first trailer for it is incredible. It had a good trailer. I think it's a really good trailer. I'm bringing all of this up because with the exception of Power of the Dog, which I rewatched yesterday, Belfast is the only Best Picture nominee I've seen twice. And that's because the first time I saw Belfast, I walked out of the theater and I said, I think that was a catastrophe. But everyone I saw it with really liked it. And I was like, maybe I was just in a weird mood. So I'll go see it again. And I went to see Belfast again. And I said, okay, it was not a catastrophe. However, it is also not good. I know so little about it. And I don't think Belfast is the worst Best Picture nominee because it is not Don't Look Up. Yeah, I was about to say, it has some stiff competition. And here's the thing. Overall, I think it's a very good 10. And honestly, if Belfast and Don't Look Up are the worst movies nominated for Best Picture, we came out pretty well. Because Belfast is at least lovingly made, well-acted. It's a good-looking movie, except that it starts with what can only be described as, like, the, like, hotel info screen when you, like, walk into your hotel in Belfast. Like, it's full-color drone footage of Belfast landmarks while a Van Morrison song plays. Interesting. It's, it's like, almost disgusting. You're like, why am I looking at this? And then the movie gets away from that and is in full black and white for the rest of its runtime. It's super weird. I don't fully know what, what Brano was going for. Anyway, we are now at a point where I think Death on the Nile is his best movie in several years. Oof. So Belfast is like fully a COVID movie. It was written by Kenneth Branagh while under lockdown. It is inspired by his childhood growing up in Belfast in Northern Ireland at the beginning of the Troubles in the late 1960s. And so it's simultaneously about the brewing Troubles, about like him being a kid, gaining a limited consciousness of the world around him, but he's still pretty young. So he's also distracted by like having like his first ever crush on a girl and like loving going to the movies and seeing Chitty Chitty Bang Bang at Liberty Valance. And then also it's about like his parents' deteriorating relationship, played by Jamie Dornan and Katrina Balfi. It's about his grandparents and his relationship with them, played by Judy Dench and Kieran Hines. So there's a lot going on in this movie, which ultimately I think is the problem with it. Like, it's biting off more than it can chew, and I think any one of those movies could have been great. Like, honestly, kind of made the way that it they were. I, I think it's a lovely-looking movie. I think everybody's acting really well, but I don't think any of the stories is given the attention that it needs. I think the movie believes the whole thing happens from the kid's perspective, a buddy, played by Jude Hill, who is great, but it also wants to have all these more complicated adult relationships, which sometimes means it's engaging with all that when the kid's not there, and I... I don't know. I don't think that the movie succeeds in the task that it sets for itself. That all sounds fair. I have not seen it. I intend to watch it, but it was still like a $20 rental. It's not worth a $20 rental. It's not a bad movie. It is it is simply not good. I mean, fair. <laughs> wow. And yeah, it's the thing of like, I was so in the tank for you it. You were which I think so is why ready I, for Branagh win. I think it's why I reacted so strongly the first time. Yeah. I think my hopes for it were lower than yours going in. Yeah, oh, they definitely were. So, I think You that weren't reacting be... the way that I, you do when I talk about James Cameron winning Best Director next year, but you were getting there. Yikes. Alright. So, um, Will, where anyway, would you the, rate it? Oh, Well, the romance of Belfast. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about that. There are really three romances in Belfast in each generation. 
the cutest and the one that I was most invested in, because I think the movie works best when it's focused on this little kid, is Buddy is in love with this girl in his class. They're like eight or something like that. So it's like very much like kid love. He's a little bit worried about it because he discovers that she is a Catholic and he doesn't really understand anything going on in the Troubles, but he knows that the Catholics and Protestants are not getting along. But his dad, Jamie Dornan, is just like, whatever, do, you know, be a cute little kid. So it's about him, like, trying to get cute with her. He, like, tries to finagle getting with her for a group project. There's a really funny thing where the kids in this class are seated front to back based on how they score on weekly quizzes. Like, they're in two columns. So, like, the kids in the front two desks right by the teacher are the kids who did the best. And this girl is, like, the smartest girl in the class, so she's always at the front. And Buddy decides that to be friends with her, to, like, get her to like him, he needs to get up to sit next to her. And so he is, like, studying like crazy to get to the front of the room. And when he finally does it, finally gets into the second second position, he does it by beating out her, and now she's behind him. I think that's a dumb system, because the children that do the worst should be at the front, because they need more attention. Well, first of all, you should not do this by reading out the names in order. Also terrible. (laughs) It's a dumb system for a number of reasons. So that's all very sweet. Uh, Buddy is very sad at the end of the movie when his family leaves Belfast and he has to go say goodbye to this girl. The middle generation, we have Jamie Dornan and Katrina Balfi as Buddy's parents. They are feeling the strain because there are not enough jobs in Ireland which is contributing to the political turmoil. So Jamie Dornan, uh, he's a joiner. He works in construction has been working over in England, so he's gone a lot of the time. So Catriona Balfi is having to raise the kids. She's amazing in this movie. And there's tension between them because of the distance, because of all that that involves. And eventually at one point he comes to her and he's like, look, I have been offered with my company a position that'll last like three or four years in England and they're offering to move families. We should move. The situation here is not going to get better. And they have fights. There's tension between them. Um, A lot of people like this part of the movie the best. I think it's well acted, but I don't think it fits with the movie that is being shown to us. Eventually, they do decide that their family should leave the country together. And the movie's dedicated to those who left and those who stayed behind. Over another one of those, like, drone stills of modern-day Belfast. And then the third romance is Kieran Hines and Judy Dench as the grandparents. Kieran Hines and Judy Dench are low-key like 20 years apart in age. Yeah. I, Judy Dench is like I kind 89. Of the next time she gets an Oscar nomination, she will be the oldest nominee in history because she'll beat out Christopher Plummer. But they are married and it's nice. And then Kieran Hines gets cancer or something and dies. And Judy Dench does not leave Ireland. She stays behind. So that's the romance of Belfast. There's a bunch of them. I honestly think they're all pretty believable. Uh, my beef is not with their details, but with their quantity and focus. I'm kind of inclined to give Belfast a 10. I think I think that individually they are well done. Hey, if you say so. Belfast, two and a half stars, 10 out of 10 on romance. So the next movie alphabetically is CODA, which stands for Children of Deaf Adults. Heck yeah. Heck yeah to the movie, not to the concept of children of deathly adults. Like sweet morning dew, I took one look at you, and it was plain to see you were my destiny. With my arms open wide, I threw away my pride. I'll sacrifice for you, dedicate my life to you. I will go where you lead, always there. 
it's just this nice little movie about a, a high schooler who is the only hearing person in her family. Both of her parents and her older brother are deaf. They're all played by deaf actors, including the youngest winner for the Best Actress Academy Award, Marley Matlin, who plays her mom. Always great. I was rewatching West Wing season one last weekend, and it's a delight to see her there, too. She won at 21, which is just, for Best Actress, that's nuts to me. She has the record over Jennifer Lawrence by, like, a couple of months. Right. So, their daughter, whose name escapes me at the moment... The character is Ruby. She's played by Amelia Jones. Ruby. Ruby helps out on their fishing boat in Massachusetts, and she goes fishing in the morning and then goes to school. I can't imagine how she lives her life. But she discovers, by signing up for choir class, because the boy she has a crush on joins... A a great premise for a high school movie. Great premise for a high school movie. She joins the choir, and it turns out that she actually can't sing. The boy is Miles, who's played by Fergio Walsh Pilo, the star of My Beloved Sing Street. Wait, that's him? Yeah. He's all grown up. Yeah, but still playing a high schooler. But still playing a high schooler. So her parents initially aren't very supportive because it is an activity in which they cannot appreciate what she's doing at all. There's a, a scene where Marley Matlin says, like, oh, really, music? Like, if I were blind, would you be really into painting? Yeah, she's just like... Chalking she it thinks up it's to like teenage, teenage rebellion. Yeah, teenage rebellion. And turns out she's really good, and she starts taking private lessons with the choir teacher to audition for Berkeley College of Music. You know, Eugenio Derbez. <laughs> While her parents and brother are working to create a fish co-op to avoid the auction. Something I think if you understood what fishing is like would have more meaning. <laughs> but while she's doing this, she's singing a duet with Miles, Ruby and Miles start to have feelings for each other. He screws up by so he's a popular guy. She is not. He's over practicing singing and they hear her parents having sex because they don't know how loud they are. And they didn't think anyone was home. And since Ruby's the only hearing person in the family, when that kind of thing happens, she just like blasts music. Right. But then they basically give a sex talk about using condoms. And I think... Maybe some people might think it's the final scene where he sits in the truck with Ruby. I think this scene is what is going to win Troy Kotzer the Oscar. Oh my god, his different euphemisms for condoms as well as his both like ASL and then general hand gestures to indicate what he's talking about are so funny. This movie gets what Sound of Metal did not. I complained a little bit about Sound of Metal last year that it was... A very good movie about deaf people and about deafness, but that didn't understand how to shoot deafness. Like, a lot of the times, you'd have people in close-up and just subtitles of unseen sign language. And, like, sign language is so physical, it's part of the expressiveness of it. And I think that Sean Hader, who directed this movie, always finds really good ways to display the actors fully delivering their lines. Because you're missing the performance if you can't see that. Right, you're getting all of the expression. It's shot so well. Some of my favorite moments like when they're at the concert and she's singing her solo but then they like pan around the family and they just cut the sound out so you experience what her family is experiencing and how alien it is and how alienating it is and it's a great moment 
So this happens. Miles tells a friend who then tells the like high school bully who bullies Ruby for her parents and brother being deaf and for smelling like fish. And then she makes fun of her. Ruby gets mad, blames Miles rightly. But then he tries to make it up to her. They go swimming in a quarry. That's what it looks like to me. It might not be. But then... Yeah, I think that's what's going on. Yeah, she forgives him. They sing their duet. She gets into Berkeley. He doesn't. They have, like, a final moment. And that's the end of the romance. It's all very cute. It's all very cute. My biggest beef about it is why would she be so interested in a guy who is friends with the girl who makes fun of her parents for being deaf? Because he's cute. Yeah. But it's still, like, that just... I never experienced that feeling or anything. I can't relate to it. The idea of being interested in someone that's friends with your bully, even if he is nice. Yeah, I know that's a thing that exists, but you do raise a good point. It just... He's... He's not cute enough to overcome how mean she is, in my opinion. That's fair. I think Coda is a movie that's a lot like King Richard in this year's slate of Best Picture nominees, in that both of them fall into very familiar genres. Like, Coda is... It was a Sundance premiere that's just, like, a nice little small-scale story about a family and, like, a first-generation college student and, like... It's very feel-good in the, like, long-tail Little Miss Sunshine tradition of Sundance. And King Richard is, you know, a sports movie biopic kind of thing. And I think it's easy to dismiss both of those movies for that reason. But I think both of them belong in this list because both of them are that kind of movie executed on such a high level that it reminds you why a million lesser types of that movie get made. Uh, That's a really good way of phrasing Coda. Right, it's like, Coda is, like, designed in a lab to, like, make you, like, feel things at key moments, but you don't get mad at the movie for you for it, because you're like, right, you, you set this up, it works, like, this is why yeah. we like this movie. And yeah, I teared up during the truck scene, obviously. Yeah. I was emotional during their goodbye when she goes off to college, and then I googled how far Gloucester, Massachusetts is from Berkeley, and it's a 44-minute <laughs> drive, and then I was like, okay... It's a cultural distance, Mark. Let's tone it down a little. But I think it's really good. It's really sweet. The romance, it's plausible, but I wouldn't give it a 10. I'm leaning towards like an 8 for this one. I was also thinking an 8 for this one. All right. So that's Coda. By the way, just about all of these, Mark, you brought up with Belfast. With the exception of Belfast, which is a $20 rental for some reason, nearly all of these are streamable right now. Like, you can watch Coda on Apple TV. It's great. Yeah. Probably of all of these, it's the one that is best, like, on your home TV, just to, like, cozy up. Yes, I would agree with that. But moving on to our next bonus award, movie in which the leads should have kissed. Will, your answer. I want you to go first for this one. Okay. My answer... Who should have kissed? Absolutely terrible. My first thought when I read this... (laughs) was Evan Hansen and his mom on the couch (laughs) in that moment where it really looked like they were about to kiss. They should have, because by that point in that movie, it just needed to swerve into being interesting. (laughs) It needed something. What's crazy is that movie has the same writer as Tick, Tick, Boom. I hate that that was my first thought. I came up with a better answer. My actual award goes to Lady Gaga and Salma Hayek in House of Gucci. Okay. That is a great answer. They should have kissed. 
they should absolutely have kissed. That's that's the answer. Yeah. Uh, my answers are both animated. Um, Luca, those kids should have kissed. They yeah, extremely true. That movie is like Wolfwalkers in that it is about uh being a little gay kid. No matter how hard the writer fights, I don't believe that it wasn't written about little gay kids. Yes. Um, similarly, what I think is, like, the number one, in part because they're the characters are older, uh, number one, Raya and the Last Dragon, those kids should have kissed. I still need to watch that one, but based off the trailer alone, there's definite characters that should be kissing vibes. Uh, very much so. Uh, yeah, so, uh, let's let the, uh, let's let, let's have some, some same-sex kissing in animated movies. Yeah, let kids be gay, because there are kids that aren't gay. Shout out to the Mitchells versus the Machines. Gay kid who has committed on social media to being a listener to movie podcasts. So, Katie Mitchell, we love you. (laughs) Whoever's running their FYC campaign is targeting it only at movie nerds, and I don't think it's going to be successful, but I have been enjoying it. It's such a good movie. Yeah, I just don't think it can pass in Kanto. No, not with the juggernaut behind it. Uh, Anyway, okay, next Best Picture nominee is the first one that, well, no, you did kind of see this one. It's Don't Look Up. This sounds very, very exciting. Exploding stars. Like, stars actually explode. So, um, how big is this thing? Could it, like, destroy someone's house? Is that possible? Well, Comet Bibiaski, which is what it will officially be named, is somewhere... After her. After yeah, after her. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. What an honor. Yeah, right? Congratulations. It's somewhere between six and nine kilometers across, so... It's big. It would damage the, the entire planet, not just a house. No. The entire planet. Okay, well, as it's damaging, will it hit this one house in particular that's right on the coast of New Jersey? It's my ex-wife's house. I need it to be hit. Come Can on, we make that happen? You and Shelly have a great relationship. No, you stop. Listen, in all fairness... You fa- need to stop. I will, but in all fairness, I actually paid for the house. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Are we not being clear? We're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. I watched half of this on a plane, and then I had half of the plane ride left, and I... So what you're saying is you could have finished the movie. I could have finished it. I was bored, and I was browsing what they had available on the free entertainment system on United Airlines app, and I saw that they had Bob's Burgers, a show I have watched all the way through multiple times episodes i had seen at least three times and i said this is a better use of my time and so instead i watched bob's burgers and it definitely was i kept telling myself i will go back and finish it but eventually i had accepted i would not be going back and finishing it when a week passed i realized you weren't going to i hated this i did not enjoy watching it this is one that i was like hopeful for i didn't think it was gonna be good but i allowed myself to think it might be And I will grant this. Don't Look Up, which is Adam McKay's latest topical would-be comedy, is both funnier and better than Vice. But it still treats you like you're an idiot. It does. But of course, here's the thing, Mark. The fact that we are saying this means we are pro-climate change. My God. Adam McKay and his co-writer David Sirota have made it very clear that people who don't like this movie, it means that they don't think the climate crisis is a big deal. It's the same thing with Vice. It's why I don't like watching Adam McKay movies. Is He's so over the top, hitting you on the head. And he's like, you're such an idiot for not understanding what's going on. And it's like, I do understand what's going on. You are not subtle. I am bored. 
let's move on. What I'll say for Don't Look Up is Don't Look Up has actual jokes that I like. I think it is very funny that Jennifer Lawrence realizes, like, some Pentagon general charges her for free snacks, and she never gets over it for the entire movie. Okay, that actually really funny. That's the funniest joke in this entire movie, which is itself kind of an indictment. Now, I know a zillion people watched it on Netflix, because Netflix, where they have those, like, little rectangles, and they show you an image on the rectangle designed to get you to click on it, they could show everybody their favorite star. Like, they could show you Jonah Hill, or Timothy Chalamet, or Kate Blanchett, or Jennifer Lawrence, or Leonardo DiCaprio, or whoever. I hate how effective that is. It has tricked me into thinking shows are much gayer than they are. I just think it's funny, some of the ones that I get. Like, Set It Up for me shows a picture of Pete Davidson, and I don't know why. I love that What If had the gay couple on it, and they're in, like, two episodes. Also, it flashed between that and Renee Zellweger, and both worked. I was gonna say, the Renee Zellweger in that show is still serving that audience. Yeah, it's you get both. So yeah, so Don't Look Up is Adam McKay's, he, he hopes, like, fire alarm about the coming climate crisis. Uh, it's a bad metaphor, because his metaphor is that a giant asteroid is gonna collide with the Earth. And that's a bad metaphor, because the thing about an asteroid coming is, at some point, it just comes. And there's a point you can point to at, that's when the asteroid wasn't there, and now the asteroid has come. And the whole issue with the climate crisis is that there's not one moment. Like, the metaphor in the movie misses the fundamental issue in getting people to care about the climate crisis. Exactly. Like, the problem with the climate crisis is there is no and never will be one point. It feels like you can always put it off because there's not a day where the asteroid is coming. Right. There's no deadline on it. Anyway, Don't Look Up does have a romance. Leonardo DiCaprio is like a nerdy scientist, like astronomy professor or researcher or something. He's, he's at a university. And he and one of his grad students, played by Jennifer Lawrence, discover that this asteroid is coming for Earth. They eventually get themselves on a morning show to talk about it. But it's like... Look, Adam McKay has a lot of targets in this movie, and one of them, for some reason, is, like, morning shows. Like, that's the part of the media that is destroying society. Yeah, the Today Show is the downfall of us all. Yeah, the Today Show is the problem. And so, uh, Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry are the hosts of the Today Show. I gotta <laughs> say, they were both doing a good job. They are excelling at what they are asked to do. It's just that it's not worth doing. Right. And anyway, so Kate Blanchett and Leo start having sex because, look, they're both hot. What are you going to do? And the world's ending. Exactly. So they're banging. But also he's cheating on Melanie Linsky, which is, you don't do that. Of course, you don't do that. Otherwise, she'll eat you. That's what we've learned. God, I love her. So he, like, becomes the, like, recurring, like, scientist explainer on the morning show. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Uh, at some point, he decides, like, they're not taking this seriously enough. This is a real crisis. And he stops banging Kate Blanchett. At the end of the movie, he and Jennifer Lawrence go back to his family home with his wife and his kids. And they all, actually, in probably the loveliest scene of the movie, they all just, like, sit down to dinner and are, like, talking about their lives. And they've decided that as the asteroid hits, they are just going to try to have the most normal everybody around the table that they can. Um, and that's a nice scene. But... The movie stinks getting up there. Also in there, Jennifer Lawrence might date Timothy Chalamet for a hot second. I don't really remember that part of the movie super well. She also well. has the ex who writes the, like, I slept with the crazy shouting girl. Right, she has the bananas unreasonable ex-boyfriend. Yeah. 
And that's that. I watched Don't Look Up at 8 o'clock in the morning the week leading up to our top 10 episode when I was just trying to crush 2021 movies. That day I watched four, I think. I watched Don't Look Up, Girl Boss Cinderella, Werewolves Within, the Sam Richardson, Milana Vaynerchuk werewolf comedy, and Licorice Pizza. So some of this has been lost. That's valid. Um, anyway, Drive My Car, bad movie. Uh, don't nope, watch it. Don't look up, bad movie. Drive My Car, good wa- movie. Uh, don't, yes, oh my God, <laughs> Drive My Car, so good. Don't look up, bad movie. Uh, if you want to know if this movie has contempt for you, know that there is a mid credit scene where Jonah Hill shouts, don't forget to like and subscribe at the audience. Because Adam McKay thinks that we're spending too much time watching short videos on the internet. And Adam McKay certainly had nothing to do with building a culture of watching short videos on the internet. That would be so funny. He'd die. Also, don't forget to like and subscribe on YouTube is kind of over. Yeah. Everyone just knows it. You don't say it anymore. Right. Um, so that's Don't Look Up. I give it a five. Sure. Five. I'm pretending like I watched it. It has to come with the sigh, Mark. Or a sure. Fine. Ugh. All right, let's talk about Drive My Car. Okay, moving on to a much, much, much better movie. We will next be discussing Drive My Car, which is a notoriously long movie already. When I say- It's three hours. It's three hours. I have said to more than one person, now you should watch Drive My Car, and they say, isn't that the one that's three hours long? (laughs) (laughs) And it's really funny in that it- just leans into it. The opening titles don't start until the 45-minute mark. I Mark, so I saw Drive My Car in a theater in January, and I just, like, settled in. It was great. It was, like, decently crowded for, like, a 4 p.m. showing on, like, a Tuesday. And so we're just, like, settled in watching it. And when that opening title hit, I almost applauded. I mean, the opening is so good and if we were to stick to our promise of just talking about the romance we would really only have 45 minutes of the movie to talk about which itself would be a satisfying film Uh, yeah so the plot of the movie the lead character who is an actor yes he's played by hitatoshi nishijima distractingly hot he's so good uh everyone in this movie's hot it's just hot people it is he is a stage actor who is married to a TV screenwriter who comes up with stories while and post-sex, but she doesn't remember them. So he writes them down and narrates the stories she comes up with to her the next day, and she then turns them into screenplays. That is the partnership of marriage. And they have a daughter who died when she was four years old of pneumonia, And one time, he is going to take a flight. The flight is canceled. I believe he's going to a theater festival somewhere. Vladivostok, I think? Yeah. The flight's canceled for the weather, and he returns home, walks in the door, sees his wife having sex with someone. This young actor played by Koji Takatsuki, who's on one of the shows she works on. It's actually never established that it's him. Oh, really? We don't see his face. Oh. And, like, he never actually admits to sleeping with her. Fascinating. I gotta see this movie again. But the lead character... Kafuku. 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 Something like that. I'm on Wikipedia. I have Kafuku. Okay. He doesn't react that strongly. He just turns around, leaves, closes the door silently, and goes to the hotel, calls his wife and says, like, oh, I made it safely. Goodbye. And then he returns home 
Right, he presumably chills in a hotel at the airport for a couple of days. Well, I think the flight got moved to the next day. Oh, right. Like, yes. I don't think they canceled the festival. So he probably, I assume, goes. He comes back to town later. His wife, before he drives to work one day, says, can we talk when you get home? Uh, You know what doesn't come up that much slash ever again? His glaucoma <laughs> and the fact that he is slightly going blind. It's not addressed in the text but i do think it looms over everything it does but i was just like i was expecting a chekhov's gun you might say where they bring it up and then it's not brought up again in text directly yeah but you know it's the kind of thing where especially in that prologue he is just losing every piece of his life he's losing his marriage he's losing his vision his ability to drive Eventually, he loses his wife. Yeah, and of course, he has that issue with driving, and then he is not allowed to drive for other reasons later in the movie. Right. And he has to say to someone, drive my car! He says that, like, every five minutes in the movie. (laughs) So he goes to work, and he comes back to find his wife dead from a cerebral hemorrhage. We are now 45 minutes into the movie, and the title credits roll. It's so good. And the rest of the movie is about him directing a multilingual production of Uncle Vanya at the Hiroshima Theater Festival. It's the wild thing of, like, until you said that thing about Uncle Vanya, it sounds like you just summarized an entire movie. Yes. Um, The multilingual theater element is so cool. It's fascinating. Every actor is speaking in their native language. And you have someone speaking Chinese, people speaking Japanese, someone speaking Korean Sign Language... Someone speaking English. Someone speaking English, and they're all just reciting their lines, and they have subtitles when they're actually at the production. It's so it's so cool. Everything about this movie just rules. I gotta see. Incredibly, Ryosuke Hamaguchi, who directed it, had another movie come out last year. How? Called Wheel, How does called he Wheel have of Fortune the time? And, and it was also well-reviewed, so I gotta track it down and see it. I think it's showing at the AFI in April. Oh, and we should point out that this movie is based on a short story by Haruka Murakami. So there's just a lot of Japanese talent packed into this. Yes. Uh, so while he is in Hiroshima, the theater festival has a rule that visiting artists are not allowed to drive their own cars because one time someone hit someone. So they hire a driver who is a 20-year-old woman who drives his car. Played by Reika Kirishima, who is also really good. Because everyone in this movie is great. She's so good. No, wait, sorry. I was I was reading Wikipedia wrong. It's Tokomira. She might have maybe like 10 to 15 minutes of dialogue max in a three-hour movie. And she is turning in such a good performance. I'm just saying, if the Oscars could give Best Picture to Driving Miss Daisy, they should give it to this much better chauffeur movie. But yeah, the rest of the movie is kind of... It's hard to summarize because it's a lot of silence, a lot of driving, a lot of acting as actors, and just like this contemplative film using both cars and Uncle Vanya to express human emotion. It's so good. It's about grief. It's about finding connection. It's just kind of amazing. And you really just owe it to yourself if you like what we like. And you've had years of podcasts to figure it out. You owe it to yourself to just carve out three hours and watch this movie. And, I mean, Nick, who was just, like, not that interested in it, was in the room 
on his computer while I started it. And he eventually just sat down and started watching. He was convinced he wouldn't like it. But then he just joined and started watching it with me. It's kind of undeniable. Like, there was a lot of discussion last year about movies that were very long. Because there were a lot of very long movies released in theaters last year. But this is one where, like, I could have just kept going. Like, it was this and Dune. Like, when I realized, oh, shoot, we've only got 30 minutes left. I was like, what if we had two hours? Well, good thing Dune Part 2 comes out this year. Dune Part 2 is not coming out this year. Yeah, I don't believe it either. No, they're they're not even claiming it, Will. They're claiming oh, 2023. They are. I misread yeah. a article online then. I think that movies can be shorter. I love a good 90-minute movie. Yeah. This one earned its length. Oh, yeah, for sure. The romance, it's believable. You know, it it sure is. Let's see. They're married. They seem to have a pretty, a pretty good relationship, a working relationship. Uh, we do find out that she's been cheating on him with multiple people, but he doesn't want to lose her. So he kind of right. just accepts it. He pretends not to know. He pretends not to know. He doesn't seem that upset about it. Yeah. I think he is, though. I think he is, though. And then, of course, he's absolutely wrecked by her death. Yes. Oh, destroyed. So where would you rate this, Mark? Uh, I don't know. Maybe a 10? Let's give it a 10. I love this movie. Why not? Drive my car. All right, Will. Bonus board number four. Movie in which the leads should not have kissed. I've hated on this movie a lot, but it's Ghostbusters Afterlife. Those teens shouldn't have kissed because I didn't care about them. I was fine when Paul Rudd and Carrie Coon kissed because, A they're hot and b they're pretty good in the movie i got no beef with them but the teens boring now i am repeating an answer in that i think in dear evan hansen she should not have kissed that emotional terrorist what are you talking about he he sang a song about how her brother was in love with her i just that movie's bad i don't need to go into more detail she should not have kissed him i like that that movie got zero oscar nominations thank god after her opening tiff. Thank God. I really just wanted to spend a lot of time shitting on that movie. That's fine. It deserves it. Huh. What I did love was when West Side Story, a movie that far too few people saw in theaters, finally came out on streaming on Disney and HBO. There were all these things going around of people showing musical sequences from that movie, especially the entrance into the dance. And people just talking about like, If nothing else, West Side Story is a testament to Steven Spielberg's incredible skill as a director. Like, this one two-minute shot is a masterclass in directing. And so those kept going around, and finally someone put up one that was... This two-minute shot shows what a great director Steven Spielberg is. But it was Evan Hansen walking into that pep rally at the start of the movie. (laughs) And Uh, the comparison of those two scenes is pretty damning. that's That's so good. I hate it, dear Evan Hansen. You will learn my feelings about West Side Story last. I look forward to it. For now, though, Mark, once again, as we've been doing literally for years on this show, let's talk about Dune. Dude! Dude! It was so I good. I just bought the steelbook of that one, too. When my father came, not for spice, not for the riches, but for the strength of your people. My road leads into the desert. I can see it. If you'll have us, we will come. It was so good. 
Ugh, I love Dune. I love the book Dune. I loved the movie. I personally could have used a bit more Dune nonsense. I don't think the words but Larry and Jihad were ever uttered on screen. It was not, unfortunately. I think they were really trying to skirt, like, some of the red flag phrasing. Yes. Like, when Paul has his vision, he calls it a holy war. And in the book, it's a jihad. Yeah, they definitely are working their way around that. They don't have the orange Catholic Bible, which is when a bunch of religions just got together and put their different holy texts into one book that is now in, like, a little microchip. Dune is so good. They don't talk about Choam, which I have to I have to read out what that stands for, which is, like, the big company that is made up of the noble houses and owns... It's like the oil company monopoly, basically. Right. That stands for the Combined Hanet Ober Advancer Mercantiles. Mark, Dune is good. Dune is great. And here's the thing. You know, they may not have said all those words, but I do think Dune is a satisfyingly weird movie. Like, oh. everything Stephen McKenley Henderson is throwing down in that. Yeah. Adisha Emperor. I was going to jump in and just say, so that's all the stuff Dune doesn't have. The things Dune does have is everything. It has great acting, stunning visual effects, a pronunciation of the Padishah Emperor that I don't believe and no one has ever said. Yes. Um... Charlotte Rampling. The whole movie, it feels like it was production designed by a sandworm. Where it's like, what if everything were huge and orange? And I'm like, yes, June, you made the correct choice. It's all so huge, and I love it. I put on that soundtrack sometimes when I'm working, and every once in a while a student will come in, and I'm like, I wonder what they think is happening right now. My biggest complaint is that there is not enough Charlotte Rampling. I am hoping we get more in the next one, but she is... So good. So good. As Oh, as the Reverend Mother Gaius the... Helen Mohayam? Yeah, exactly. I love this movie. Dude! And also, it has Oscar Isaac. It has seven minutes of Zendaya not playing Michi. No, but Zendaya is Michi. Like, Zendaya is Michi. In this, she is playing... Um, Chani. Zendaya is Chani, which importantly is the same number of syllables. <laughs> and also, I don't know if they ever say her name. No, because she's not in this part of the book. They added her so no. they could put Zendaya in the marketing. Yeah, like, she is just not in the book up to the point that they hit in the movie. Right, that's the thing, where you have to be like, people should not complain Zendaya did not get enough screen time. If anything, she got too much. Yeah. The next movie, Denis Villeneuve has already said, is about Chani. The promising thing, Mark, and I don't know if you've seen this because you are not on Twitter, is that they want to cast Florence Pugh as Princess Irulan. Stop. Which, one, amazing. Two, that is not a very big character in the novel Dune. And to me, if you are casting Princess Irulan, it means you want to make Dune Messiah. So, I think that if they wanted to cast Princess Irulan, they should have had her providing voiceover in the first part because her yes, but that's openings... such a tricky thing to do because oh, i like, know those irulan quotes are propaganda yeah but they're so important yes i think the movie does a good job of the myth making though it oh, just yeah. gives that to rebecca ferguson it does and it's better done but i think if you're going to try and make princess irulan a character some sort of shout out to that part of it should come up at some point 
well, make Dune Messiah. Yeah, that too. Um, great choice. Love Florence Pugh. Romance Dune, I guess. Paul has some visions of Chani. No, the romance of Dune is is Leto and Jessica because like love is the driver of that story. It's Jessica is supposed to have a daughter because she's a member of this weird cult that, among other things, can choose the gender of their children. And they've been having a centuries-long breeding program to breed the Messiah. And Jessica is supposed to have a daughter who will then marry the heir to the House of Harkonnen. Like, he'll marry... I guess Dave Batista, Stellan Skarsgård's kid, or maybe Dave Batista's kid, and then their child will be the Messiah. But Jessica loves Leto, and she knows Leto wants a son, so she's like, "Screw it, I'm gonna have a son. Like, I'm gonna move this thing ahead." So, like, the whole plot of Dune, like all of the Paul Atreides stuff, is because of love. It is. I feel like they could have done a bit more with that, and not just because I wanted to see Oscar Isaac on screen more. Yes, he is on screen a decent amount. He's super hot in this movie. He's got a great beard. Uh, He does have his shirt off, but only for the scene where he dies. So, like, it's not too hot, but it's there a little bit. Yeah. They could have done a bit better with Jessica. She's the only character... I think she's great. I think she's great, but I think in the book, Jessica is really, like, the main character in the beginning. That's interesting. I haven't read the novel in... Since, like, undergrad. Maybe that's just because when I read it, I didn't care about Paul. It was reading it for Jessica. I love what she gets to do during the Gom Jabbar scene. Oh, definitely. Ugh, that scene. Even though, I gotta say, that concept is still a little ruined because of the Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, where they make a Gom Jabbar (laughs) joke in an episode. And also have an episode that's just the God Emperor of Dune. What a weird book. Ugh. I made it to like a third of the way through Heretics of Dune, which is the fifth book. But by that point, Frank Herbert had gone fully off the deep end and was writing about how like God Emperor Leto II going about like, in history, the true villains were the liberals who wanted to make everyone equal. Oh, yikes. Frank Herbert is a fascinating guy to read about. He was like a survivalist libertarian, partially raised like on a commune, partially raised by like a Native American dude. And just, like, the deep, the longer he gets into his life, the more off the deep end he goes. And those Dune books really suffer for it later on. Anyway, uh, shout out to Timothy Chalamet for perfectly capturing Paul's whiny bitch energy from the books. He's good! But I... Good movie! Good movie. I'd give the romance a 9 out of 10. Feels good to me. Uh, next up is King Richard. I fixed Serena serve. Because you messed that up. You did what? Yes, I fixed that toss because you messed it up. Mm-hmm. I'm here. I've been here. Dreaming and believing just like you. Mm-hmm. You just don't want to see me. So, uh, what you want? What you want? You, you want to thank you? <laughs> That's all right, Richard. That's all right. I don't need your thank you. Unlike you, I don't need the world to tell me I'm great. Which you did not see. No, I did not. Sports, not for me. I think you would like it. I Like I said earlier with Coda, I think it's an example of just a genre of movie that's easy to dismiss, the sports biopic, especially because you and I grew up in a period where these were coming out nonstop. You had your hits, you had your miracles, you had your like mediums, your invincibles, your the rookies, and some lower tier ones that I've probably fully forgotten. Yeah, I do. Every so often I will enjoy a sports movie, and I know I should give it a shot. But it also was a $20 rental when I was trying to watch the Oscar movies. Totally fair. But I think this one's really good. I was anticipating this one. It's another movie with a great trailer. 
That said, I was I also correctly predicted the initial Twitter reaction on its release weekend, which at some point I said to my fiance, I am dreading opening weekend of King Richard when somebody goes viral complaining that they made a Williams Sisters movie about a man. And sure enough, that was what the discourse was on Twitter that weekend. I did think that, but then you explained it and I said, good point. And that's that's what people on Twitter need to learn. That they should listen to me, yeah. No, mm-mm. Be willing to back down. Number one, the Williams sisters' careers are still ongoing, so it would be silly to make, like, the movie about them, because they're not done. Uh, Number two is that Richard Williams was a fairly large public persona in the tennis world early in their careers. This movie is about him raising Venus and Serena and being their primary coach for tennis. He talks a lot in the movie and talked a lot in real life about how when Venus was born, he wrote an 85-page plan for how he was going to raise the greatest tennis player of all time. And for their two childhoods, he followed his 85-page plan. And during the early years of Venus and Serena as tennis players, he was very much out in front, in public. He's a wild character. I was watching some YouTube videos of like news clips that he appeared in this afternoon just to get a feel of the real Richard Williams. And on the one hand, you get why the media, especially the media of the 90s, latched onto him as like, this guy's kind of nuts. But you also get that most of the time when he like would jump in in the middle of an interview and start talking or stuff like that, it really was geared around protecting his kids and making sure that as they were exposed to the grind of professional sports and of the journalism surrounding professional sports, they still got to be respected as kids. And that's really what the movie is about. It's about this guy who grew up pretty poor in Shreveport and wants his family to have success, but is like, perhaps to a fault, laser focused on this particular idea for how that success should come. And that leads him to get in fights with people a lot. Like it leads him to get in fights with their great coaches played by Tony Goldwyn and John Bernthal. John Bernthal's amazing in this movie. He's got the best mustache and the best little shorts as he's coaching tennis. And so the movie is, it's one of those like sports biopics about like a guy and his family. And you feel like you've seen it a million times, but it's just done so effectively. I think one of the real triumphs of this and a real testament to the editing, especially which King Richard won the award from the editors guild for best picture is that it's the rare sports movie where you can follow the sports. Like, anytime they are showing a tennis match, you can follow that match and track how it's going. Oh, that's interesting. Granted, you have to be able to understand how a tennis match is going yourself for that to work. Yeah, but it's really impressive. It is not a thing where, like, you feel like they're showing you a couple of clips of stuff going on. You really feel like you are getting a sense of that game, which I think is impressive. This is a movie that I think is operating at a much higher level than people would expect of it. It's really lovely. As far as the romance, it is primarily about... Uh, Richard Williams, played by Will Smith, who is going to win Best Actor. Why does the Oscars love someone playing a person that exists so much? They especially love it in Best Actor. And Best Actress. But I feel like actor even more than actress recently. I was reading a piece, I believe Alyssa Wilkinson had in Vox, where she was interviewing people about this. And the consensus there basically was like, impersonation of a famous person is the only thing everyone can agree on on what good acting is. Like, the argument was, Mm. once De Niro started winning Oscars and the method really took off, people's ideas of what good acting was 
diverged so fully that playing a real person was like a consensus thing. You could point to that and be like, that is like that guy. He did a good job. Yeah, that makes sense. So romance-wise, the movie is about Will Smith as Richard Williams and his wife, Brandy Price, who's played by Anjanou Ellis, who is really good in this movie. You know, she's playing the wife character in a sports movie, but really manages to hold her own. And that character has a lot of dignity. And again, a testament to the effectiveness of this movie. You know, it's a sports movie, though. So you have the stresses that you would expect where he's pushing for this really intense 85-page plan. I think what's different in this one is that usually it's something like, say, in Miracle, where the wife is kind of like, are you sure you need to do this? In this one, Brandy is an active participant. Like, when Richard is busy, she is going out and practicing tennis with the girls and coaching them along with it. So I think that's something that's nice and gives her character more agency. That said, like... They still get into fights sometimes about the plans he's doing, especially when he like decides to up and move the family and is like switching coaches around and stuff. He makes a lot of big decisions without talking to her. And so naturally, there is tension about that. There's also some tension at one point when one of Richard's children from a previous marriage tracks them down and she gets annoyed with that. I saw this movie in theaters in November, so I'm a little hazy on the B-plot. Fair. But yeah, you know, it's a good movie. It's well done. Venus and Serena, they're two, the two best tennis players of all time. And Will Smith is great and he's going to win an Oscar. The movie does not get into the fact that Richard Williams and Brandy Price got divorced in 2002. And then he married a woman who was like his children's age. So that's a weird thing that the movie naturally does not get into. Well, where would you rate it? I don't know, a nine. It's based on a real story, but it ignores some stuff. And I don't know. <laughs> Fine. Nine out of ten. Great. King Richard, good movie. All right, next award. The movie that most needs to be made into a musical. Oh, okay. Um, I have a joke answer and then an answer that I think would work, but is also kind of a joke. Okay, go for it. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, Mark. <laughs> Benedetta the musical. I don't hate it. Right? And I think the stuff about that movie that's like too intense for some people, like the torture stuff, which is a lot, and I'll grant that, you simply would not do on stage. Like, that character would be taken off stage and we would understood that torture was happening, which would perhaps also have been a good idea in the movie. And you get rid of that. I think better done of the musical is an interesting idea. Now, I had an idea and then I had to immediately walk that back, which was Spencer the musical. And then I remembered Diana the musical came out last year. You can watch it on Netflix. I will say, I think... If you were to do a musical based off of the film Spencer, it would be better than the musical that currently exists. What? No. But, yeah. So what's your other answer? Oh, my real answer, insanely, is Dream Horse. Mark, do you know about Dream Horse? I know about Dream Horse because you have told me about Dream Horse, but why should it be a musical? Dream Horse is the movie where Tony Collette is, like, a grocery clerk in Wales. It's based on a true story. She and some other people in her town buy a horse, and it races, and, and it's their dream horse. They, they name it Dream Alliance. I saw this trailer a zillion times and decided that I had to see it. And here's the thing about Dream Horse. It is weirdly effective. It's not a great movie. It is not even, like, anywhere near King Richard-level effective of a sports movie. But it does work, and it's just kind of sweet about a community coming together. There's, like, a Billy Elliot quality to it, and we all know that made a good musical. Um, I think Dream Horse would work. The movie does answer the funny question. If you had three horse races in a movie and they all had the exact same narrative structure, would it work every time? And in Dream Horse, the answer is yes. 
So my kind of joke answer is a Barb and Star musical. Yeah, I mean, obviously. But I also think uh, Coda on stage oh, would be that's just interesting. like a nice, lovely musical already set up for it. Basically a musical in the movie. A good chance to showcase talented deaf theater actors. Yeah, uh, the, there's really only one big like play designed for deaf performers, which is Tribes, which is a very good play. I yeah. think it'd be cool to see what a musical would look like. Yeah. Cool. That's probably the closest I have to like a uh, actual answer in this besides Manchi. <laughs> but I had one good idea today. That's a good answer. I like it. So next up, we have the movie that the internet collectively lost its mind over, which is Licorice Pizza. So how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. It's my calling. Ugh. I don't know how to do anything else. It's what I'm meant to do. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been a song and dance Come man. Come on. Ever since you were a kid. Song and dance man. Where are your parents? My mom works for me. Oh, of course she does. Yes, she does that in my public sense. relations company. In your public relations company? Because you have that. Yes. And you're an actor. Yes. And you're a secret agent, too. <laughs> well, no, I'm not a secret agent. <laughs> That's funny. This is the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It is set in the 1970s in the San Fernando Valley. And it's like partially a romance and partially just like a hangout movie. It's about this kid, Gary Valentine, played by Cooper Hoffman, son of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is a would-be businessman. And it's partially about his attempts to start businesses as he navigates 70s L.A. And also about his efforts to pursue a relationship with an older girl played by Alana Haim. And then about her experiences in 70s L.A. So there's a lot of, like, the movie is kind of divided up into a lot of different sequences where some characters will come in for like 15 or 20 minutes and then never come back. It's unclear how long the movie takes place over. Like, when I watched it, I certainly thought it was the course of one summer. But the events that are shown, the specific historical events that are referenced, like the Joel Wax mayoral campaign or the legalization of pinball, take place over, like, a five-year period, but not in the sequence they appear in in the movie. So it's very difficult to figure out how long the movie is supposed to take, which is a problem for the internet's primary focus on it, which is the age gap between these characters. Gary Valentine is 15, 16? Yeah, I think 16. He's aging out of being a child star. And Alana is, what What does she always say? Does she claim to be 25? Yeah, I think so. One of the other wrinkles is, I at least watching it was not 100% convinced she was always telling the truth about her age. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I don't, definitely think she's like over 20. Yeah, there's often a weird pause, but yeah, I do think she's probably over 20. And so that age gap naturally got a lot of attention, which makes sense and is fair. And so then at the end of the movie, when they kiss, there's a lot of people who are like, am I supposed to be into this? And it certainly feels like the movie is into it, which is part of why yeah. there's a lot of discourse about the movie and a lot of discourse about its timeline. That ultimately is kind of a shame because I think the movie surrounding it is pretty amazing. And I think both of those performances are incredible. Yes. It is like a well-made movie. Bradley Cooper, very fond as John Peters. I, I just gotta say. He plays John Peters, who we discussed three and a half years ago on our Star is Born episode. The hairdresser slash boyfriend of Barbara Streisand, who became 
a producer. Slash most hated man in Hollywood. He had bananas ideas. He produced The Witches of Eastwick and demanded George Miller put an alien in the movie to the point that he hired an actor to wear an alien suit, brought him on set, and told George Miller, put him in any shot. God, what a weird guy. So you've got that in one sequence. You've got Joel Wax, this this real-life mayoral candidate. You have the much-discussed John Michael Higgins as a racist guy who keeps marrying Japanese women that he can't tell apart and speaks in a deeply offensive faux Japanese accent to them. Oh, and you also have Sean Penn as this, like, aging star who's lecherously latched on to Alana. And ultimately, what I think the movie is getting at with all of those is all of these are men that Gary Valentine could grow up to be. Like, he is a pointedly fatherless kid. His mom is played by Mary Elizabeth Ellis, the waitress from It's Always Sunny. (laughs) The waitress herself. And Gary, you see, kind of latch on to these different men, and occasionally his clothing will change as he mirrors some of them some a little bit more and a little bit less. And he's a very compelling character himself. He gets very far in starting all these businesses because he presents such confidence that he disarms people into treating him like an adult. But at the same time, he is so much in the process of becoming who he's going to be that as each of these adults comes into the picture you see the danger of him tipping over into becoming that particular kind of horrible man. Right. And I think that's an interesting idea that the movie is playing with, as it's also having this, I think, very well-executed young romance where it's all these little moments of flirtation, but also frustration. I love when they are opening the waterbed store and... Alana is there in her swimsuit and at the start of the day she's feeling like heck yeah we're in our swimsuits we're like opening the store and as the day goes on and Gary flirts with this girl his own age she becomes increasingly uncomfortable in that outfit and the movie never has to say that it's all in the filming and the performance. Licorice Pizza is a frustrating movie because so much of it is so good but it also doesn't feel like it totally has it all together. Yeah it's definitely not the best movie I've seen this year. But, I don't know, it has its moments. I think Alana Haim should be given more roles. She's a very good actor. She is great in it. She's always been my favorite Haim sister. I guess she's mine by default. (laughs) (laughs) I just watch movies. Yeah. So, what would you rate the romance of the movie? This is a tough one to rate, because it's the kind of thing of, I, I love everything about their relationship, except the age thing is weird, and it's hard to work around. Yeah. So... I think it's got to be a four. Yeah, I think so. It's less believable. I just don't buy it. But what's there is is really compelling. Yeah. Speaking of weird relationships, Mark. <laughs> yeah, okay, let's go. Let's do it. And speaking of long movies, as we were earlier. Oh, yes. Next, we will be diving into... I mean, Licorice Pizza was also two and a half hours, wasn't it? Yeah, but it's a different two and a half hours. Licorice Pizza is segmented into these, like... 20 or 30 minute sequences. Licorice Pizza could be a TV show. I would love the Licorice Pizza TV show. Nightmare Alley, on the other hand, could not. Nightmare Alley is in two halves, and unfortunately the first half is better. Yes. What are you still doing up out of here? I had a dream. I couldn't go back to sleep. Well, tell me about it. It's about my dad. Did he pass? He was alive and smiling in the dream. 
I bet you he was handsome, wasn't he? Girls always take after their daddies. Mm. Mary Margaret Cahill, don't forget to smile, he said. I don't really like to smile, but I'd sure as hell smile for him. He could charm his way out of anything. He's a man after my own heart. So Nightmare Alley, Guillermo del Toro's new movie. Uh, not one of my favorite of his, but still. What is your favorite del Toro? I think Pan's Labyrinth. Sure. The most lukewarm take. I just, I'm, I'm a bananas guy, and I just love Crimson Peak. I also do love The Shape of Water, but Pan's, Lab- Pan's Labyrinth is special. Yeah, I mean, of course. So Nightmare Alley is based off of a 40s, like, film noir book, essentially, is what it sounds like. Yes, but there is a movie in that period as well. Right. And it is credited as being adapted from the film as well, I believe. Uh, Yes. So, the reason I describe it that way is it sounds like it's one of those books that the genre of film noir was based off of. But it's I not really, really want to read it. Book noir. So, it tells the story of Bradley Cooper, who begins the movie by burying a body in a house and then lighting it on fire and joining a circus slash Look, carnival. That movie, I love. The Bradley Cooper at a circus movie with all these characters, like, you know, we got... Rooney Mara, and we got Willem Dafoe as the, like, Willem Dafoe in full lighthouse mode running Very much circus. Willem Dafoe in this movie. He is not Willem Friend in any scene. No. And you've got, like, Ron Perlman. I love everything that happens at the circus. And the problem is, the movie moves on Leaves from the, the circus, circus and doesn't have a lot to do at that point. And the thing is, I want to watch the 40s movie, which got a Criterion release in December, And the 40s movie is about 45 minutes shorter. Yeah. So the first half, he joins Tony Collette's show as first, like, the taker, the money collector. Tony Collette, so good in this movie. Tony Collette in this movie is married to David Strathairn, and I could not ask for a greater couple. Also, you get to see just a tiny bit of Bradley Cooper's dick underwater in this. The year of Oscar contenders trying to win by showing their penises how many of these movies have dicks in them well two but that's is there much higher drive than my usual. car at all no there's like he okay, doesn't even boots. take his shirt off and drive my car except for the opening like opening sex scene and it's mostly dark yeah and dune just has sandworms right very phallic so in the first half he joins the circus he starts to learn how to be a mentalist mesmerist type deal he's definitely banging tony collette Yes, he is banging Tony Collette, but he falls in love with Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara has an act at the circus where she is like the electric woman. Basically pretends to be electrocuted by touching one of those like... Van de Graaff generators? That's what they're called. I work at a school. So yeah, that's the first half. They fall in love and then he decides to go off on his own and become a big time producer. Or yeah. I mean, big time mentalist performing in, you know, rich circles for rich people. I don't remember if it says where Act 2 is set, but the vibe I got was, like, Ohio. Wikipedia says Buffalo, New York. Okay, that feels right. Which is also where Crimson Peak begins. Uh, Yeah, so in the second half, then, he's performing at a show when Kate Blanchett, as an audience member, decides to try and beat the act. Kate Blanchett styled exactly like Carol. Yeah, Carol and Therese do touch hands. I noticed. I was watching. But did she leave her gloves behind? I was watching. She never wore gloves. I genuinely 
anytime Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett were on screen close to each other, all I could think about was Carol and how Carol is a better movie. It's um, a much better movie. And she then is basically there with some rich guy. And I mean, one problem with this movie, too, is even the movie knows that Bradley Cooper never stands a chance against Dr. Lilith. He is a simple something. Like, he's, he's like, learned how to technically do the tricks, but he's not that good a showman, and, and he's, he's not, not that, that smart, smart. dude. And, yeah. I mean, they just portray Dr. Ritter, Kate Blanchett's character, as so competent that it was never... She's the literal devil. Right. Like, there was never a chance that he would win. Right. And so then, like, when she's manipulating crime stuff and she gets, like... Richard Jenkins and Mary Steenburgen to die because this movie has a ludicrously stacked cast, but it's it it's got interesting pieces. It's just kind of dull. It's just it's disappointing. Yeah, it was good. I think Kate Blanchett is doing a great job, and I find her very compelling in this movie. She's good in it. It doesn't feel like she's stretching that much. No, I mean she's just you put. Kate she's Blanchett doing what she was hired nice, to do. Yeah, you put Kate Blanchett in some nice period clothing and tell her to destroy a man and i've got to be on board yeah it do- it doesn't take much it was a really low bar for me um so where would you rate the romance of nightmare alley i will say so she does seduce him as part of playing but mostly rooney mara just breaks up with him for being bad yes but this all does someone. help to undo his marriage to rooney mara right um so i'd give it i don't know what it's pretty I think I have a six. Seven. Okay. Okay. You say six, I say seven. All right. Mark, what was the least believable romance in a movie in 2021? You'll be surprised to learn. I gave it another award. It's Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> of course. Um, I chose a film that I cannot decide if it was good or bad, but Zack Snyder's Justice League. <laughs> Longer than any movie we have discussed today at four hours. Like I said, I can't decide if it's good or bad. I pretty much enjoyed it, and I felt like it moved, but also a lot of it was in slow-mo, and I don't think it was necessary, and it felt like nothing was left on the cutting room floor. (laughs) I have never once, certainly not since Man of Steel, bought the Henry Cavill, Amy Adams, Superman, and Lois romance, in part because they have never invested Lois with anything interesting. There is also a truly bananas scene in this movie where a grieving Lois... Because Superman was killed in Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice. A grieving Lois is informed by a general that was in one of those earlier movies that, like, she needs to move on because people need Lois Lane's journalism. And it's like, well, first of all, Lois Lane has not really done any interesting journalism in these movies, which is itself an indictment of them. But then he walks out, and that scene was in the Justice League that I saw in theaters four years ago. But what happens in this one is then he walks out and turns into Martian Manhunter. And so now I'm wondering, why does Martian Manhunter care about any of this? And the movie does not answer. Wow. So little interest. Yeah, bad movie. Anyway, let's talk about the power of the dog. Grid movie. Uh, now, gentlemen, look, see, that's what you do with the claw. It's really just for wine drips. Oh, you got that, boys. Only for the drip. (laughs) (laughs) Now get us some food. The only one of these besides Belfast that I saw twice, (laughs) I saw it in theaters, and then I watched it yesterday. 
a movie where Sam Elliott, a man from Sacramento, California. No, San Diego. Even worse. San Diego, California. No, he's from Sacramento. Who pretend he's from Sacramento? From yeah. Sacramento, who pretends to be a cowboy, said, There's no gay cowboys. How dare you make a movie about gay cowboys? Essentially. That's not literally what he said, but it is basically what he said. Yeah. I will grant that when he was growing up in Sacramento, it was probably more cowboyish than it is today. However, for him to declare, like, Jane Campion is from New Zealand, not the American West. What does she know about the West? Is pretty ludicrous when you consider that one of the iconic Western directors is a man named Sergio Leone. Yeah. And I can think of one major difference between Sergio Leone and Jane Campion. Yes. It's that Jane Campion is from New Zealand and Leone is from Italy. Oh, yes. That is exactly what I meant. Uh, The Power of the Dog, which you can watch it on Netflix and you should because it's great. It's probably going to win Best Picture unless Coda pulls it out. Like, those are the two at this point. Yeah. It should be The Power of the Dog because it's an amazing movie. It's Jane Campion's first movie in 12 years. And it's an adaptation of a Western novel from the 1960s that was a partial inspiration of Brokeback Mountain, actually. And... It is just this, like, fascinating... It's not a thriller. It's too slow-moving for that, but in a good way. It's cerebral. Real quick sidebar, speaking of Brokeback Mountain, did you see... I saw just, like, one cutting from an interview with Almodovar about Brokeback Mountain where he turned down directing it, and it was just like, I wanted to direct a film. They wouldn't be in love. It would just be about animalistic sex in the wilderness. And I did like, see that. I love Ang Lee's version, but I would have taken it a different way. And I was like, wow, that is a very different movie. Yes, that is the Almodovar version, though. Yes. Oh, uh, But anyway, so the, the Power of the Dog, it, it's this very cerebral movie, but it is very much a Western. It's set in Montana in the 20s, which is a fascinating window because on the one hand, you have Benedict Cumberbatch making comments about Victrola Records, and you have Kirsten Dunst in these, like, flapper outfits. Yeah, they're, like, importing city culture. Right. Jesse Plemons, as, like, sort of the person really running this ranch where it's all set, is very much trying to pretend that they are living in society. He's, like, having the governor over, and he's brought a baby grand piano in. He's like, this is society! We live in civilization! And, like, he's brought in his new wife, Kristen Dunst, and her son, Cody Smith-McPhee, and they're like, I guess... Meanwhile, his brother, who's played by Benedict Cumberbatch, is like, no, we are on the frontier. This is not civilization. I refuse to use the bathtub. Yes. He likes to be muddy and stinky at all times. And he is incredibly hostile to everybody around him, to everybody who does not buy into that vision. And the whole movie then is about how everyone reacts to that. How do you react to this deeply unpleasant person who is dominating life? here on the edge of civilization. And Plemons responds by getting out of town as often as possible. And Kristen Dunst responds by drinking a ton of alcohol. And Cody Smith-McPhee responds by insinuating himself into Cumberbatch's life and then ultimately murdering him. Yeah. And the normal way. You don't realize that's going on with Cody until the end of the movie. And that's why part of why I rewatched it before this, because it is so kind of incredible how much the movie from the drop is just setting up all of these dominoes and you don't realize that that's what it's doing until in the last two minutes, all of them come crashing down. It's just a really impressive. It's an amazing movie. The romance is very sweet. 
especially the main uh, between Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst, who are a couple in real life, where she is a widower, oh, a widow. Her first husband committed suicide. And she runs this restaurant that a lot of people on cattle drives stop at. And at one point, she's having trouble with a bunch of drunk customers. And Jesse Plemons just starts helping out. He puts the... He puts the napkin over his arm and just starts serving, and it's really lovely, and they get married. And then uh, he's not so great because he keeps going to town to get away from his terrible brother. And leaving her behind. Right. But there's like a wonderful shot late in the movie of the two of them kind of just dancing out in the dust outside this house. I think it is a, a really lovely relationship at the core of this very, like I keep saying, fascinating cerebral western. I think it has a hopeful ending, too, that without Benedict Cumberbatch, we are led to believe that she and Jesse Plemons will probably get happier. Yes, very much so. So, Mark, where uh, would you rate the movie. romance of Power of the Dog? Um, I don't know, like a nine, maybe a ten. Uh, let's call it a nine and move on to West Side Story. West Side Story. It is West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg. It's very good. It's very much both of those things. I mean, I went in and I was like, oh, it's West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg. And then you start with like a long establishing shot of rubble, moving camera, sweeping shots straight into people. And I was like, it's a Spielberg movie. But I do appreciate very early on the movie says... The true villain here is Robert Moses. It's incredible to imagine being at the premiere of that movie at Lincoln Center, and the movie starts with houses being demolished to build Lincoln Center. Yeah, and it says, like, slub clearance project or something. The first 15 minutes of that, I was, like, you know, in the IMAX theater at the AMC, pumping my fist, like, bouncing up and down. I'm like, this is exactly what I was promised. This is Steven Spielberg making a musical for the first time and it is written by Tony Kushner. When Corey Stoll walks on screen as Lieutenant Shrank and just starts giving that monologue, I'm like, this is what I was promised. It's very good. And I mean, you know, the love story is the main story. It's a love story between uh, Tony, a former slash current jet who went to jail and is now turning his life around, Maria, the sister of the leader of the Sharks, which is the gang of Puerto Ricans, who are fighting the Jets, they fall in love, no one likes that they're in love, and in a twist, Maria ends up alive, but Tony is dead. And along the way, you have the most important role, which is Anita, played by Ariana DeBose, who will likely win an Oscar for a role that Rita Moreno won an Oscar for. It'll become the third role that two different people have won Oscars for playing. What are the other two? The others are Vito Corleone, Okay, fair. Because Brando and De Niro both won Oscars for that. Mm hmm And The Joker. Ah, f*** off. <laughs>
Ugh, this is a much better role. I think that every time Anita is on screen, everything else stops because she is so good. The America sequence in this movie is some of the best filmmaking Spielberg has ever done. I mean, it's the peak of the movie, in my opinion. Yes. The combination of colors, the dancing, the so many different locations that they move through, the song. It's the kind of thing where you watch this and... As far as I'm concerned, Steven Spielberg is underrated. I think people take him for granted. And he he is, like, one of the best working for a reason. I also like America, probably one of the most sondheim songs in the show. Absolutely. I can't remember. There's another, uh, another one. Like, G. Officer Crumpke is another one where it's <laughs> yes. just, like, a, a Sondheim song. Not all of them are Sondheim songs, but you have a few that are just Sondheim songs. Right. Some are very Leonard Bernstein, but those two are great. And I love I love the staging of Officer Krupke in this movie as well. Like, this movie made me want to see Spielberg do an original musical. Because I love a million things about this movie. My biggest knock against it is it is not, like, one of the five greatest movies ever made. Which, as far as I'm concerned, the original West Side Story is. Yeah, that's, I mean, the other, the the biggest knock against this movie is, like, the first one, the first movie adaptation is too good. Right. So this convinced me that, like, I desperately want to see Spielberg do another musical at some point. Yeah. I'm happy to see whatever else he's got. I'm excited for the Fablemans this year. I mean, maybe not even an original musical, but a first adaptation of a stage musical. Yeah. Now, as far as the romance, I will say, I find the romance of this movie less believable than the original for a couple of reasons one it's clear that maria has been in new york a little bit longer in this movie and also it feels like she has more of a life in this we see her interacting with more people which is nice rachel zegler is phenomenal but Mm -hmm. on the one hand that means she is more integrated into a life it's harder to imagine her throwing it all to the side for tony the other thing is Stuff that is more surreal in the original movie, like One Hand, One Heart, their, like, simulated marriage, is made more literal in this one in a way that's harder to swallow. I think another knock against the believability in this, Chino is great. Yeah. I mean, obviously, at the end, when he does the murder, that's bad. But I mean, but I like nerd Chino. I like nerd Chino. I like when he throws his jacket on the ground to dance with her, like... He actually gives reasons why she should like him in this one. So my issue is I went back and I looked because we did an episode on West Side Story 1961 back in like the summer of 2018 or 2019, I think. And we gave West Side Story a one. I mean, so I think it's a one. I think I have to give this one a point five because I believe it less. I'm okay with that. It's an inherently silly concept. It doesn't need to be believable. It's not believable. I'm down with a point five. There we go. All right. We've been talking for a long time. Let's get this done. If you have to date one person in a Best Picture nominee, who is it? Oh, God. There's so many. And also so few. But I think my first first thought, Duke Leto Atreides. He's hot. I was going to say Lady Jessica. Everybody knows my feelings about Rebecca Ferguson. <laughs> we love Dune. Uh, Mark, uh, you want to call your shot on any of the Oscar winners? Um, I think Ariana DeBose has a good shot. I think it'll probably be Power of the Dog. And I think I don't really care as much about the other acting categories because they're all pretty locked up this year. 
Well, best actor is definitely locked up. It's going to be Will Smith. Supporting actor, definitely Troy Kotzer for Coda. Best actress feels like it's wide open because Jessica Chastain keeps winning precursors. Yeah, I think it's going to be her at this point. It might be. I just can't bring myself to say that it's going to be her because, for starters, it's weird that, like, that movie... Like, it's it's her and makeup for nominations for that movie. And normally you would see a little more love for, like, a top-tier acting winner. But the problem is I don't know who else it would be at this point. My sleeper pick is Olivia Coleman. I think people just like her and might just give it to her because the race is wide open. Yeah. I hope it's Kristen Stewart, but I know it won't be. I don't think that's going to happen. It's not going to happen, but I want it to. Sure. All right. Um, anything? That's 2021. Yep. All right. I think that's our that's our 2021 Best Picture winners, Best Picture, best picture nominees. Let's keep it from hitting the two-hour mark. <laughs> yeah. Um, these are very easy to watch, and I would encourage people to do so because they're pretty much all good, except Don't Watch, Don't Look Up. Probably the easiest to watch of the year. Next year, we're talking about a different Best Picture nominee from 2012, Silver Linings Playbook. Until next week, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Level of Pod or email us at levelofpod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Will, last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you saw in a 2021 movie? I'm going to stick with my best unnominated romance and say save them from the machines, which sometimes means just getting them to turn stuff off and go for a nice walk. Uh, my advice is uh, take hallucinogenic drugs and pursue whichever vision you have. What's crazy is I don't know which movie that is. Dude. That could be worst person in the world. Oh, it's sure. dude. There we go. Take some psychedelics and then find the woman you fantasize about. Boom. All right, well, there you go. Until next time, I am a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about her. Bye. Bye.